We're in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 33. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, um, but if you have another version, uh, many of the English ones uh, are similar, vary in a few different ways, but um, follow along as best as you can. Starting with verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Let's pray. Glorious God, we thank you that we have a chance to worship you this morning. We recognize that you are are worthy of our worship. You're the only one who is worthy. We recognize that you have brought us here for a distinct purpose, and that's to worship you corporately. We're not here so that we can check church off our weekly box. We're not here to earn our own righteousness so that we can get into heaven. Lord, we're not here because the Niners are not at home this week. But Lord, we are here for you. You are worthy of our praise, so I pray that we would worship you through my declaration of this sermon and also the reception of it. God, open our ears this morning. Holy Spirit, illuminate this text that we may see something from it that we haven't before. Take the all-too-known verse in 31 that says that we should do all to the glory of God, and I pray that you help that not hit deaf ears, God, but I pray that we would think about that in a new way. And that that indeed would be our life's verse as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, my beloved son. Well done, my lovely daughter. No sweeter words will ever hit your ears than those. Lord willing, you will hear those words when you enter heaven. We are all hardwired for affirmation, and oftentimes it is those whom we receive this affirmation from that we love the most, whether that be a parent, a spouse, or a friend. In the recent movie, Saving Mr. Banks, about the making of the film Mary Poppins, 
we see the author of Mary Poppins. Her name is Miss Travers. We see her interaction with Walt Disney himself as they try to adapt her novels to the big screen. Though the process, throughout the process, it becomes clear that Miss Travers is violently committed to make sure that her father, who is depicted by the character Mr. Banks, is portrayed properly and in a positive light. Through a series of flashbacks, we learn that Miss Travers' real dad, whom Mr. Banks represents, wasn't always the best. He was an alcoholic. He moved the family to Australia. He squandered away all the family's money. And in some ways, he was a failure as a father. And yet, that father still affirmed and loved Miss Travers as she grew up. So she had an affinity towards her dad. So in writing Mary Poppins and wanting to adapt it to the big screen, she wanted to make sure that her father was seen in the most positive light possible. So committed to her father's reputation, Miss Travers would have preferred a life of poverty, almost denying Disney the rights to the movie at all, she would have preferred a life of poverty than have Disney skew the image of her father. If Miss Travers was willing to do everything and lose everything so that her troubled father could be seen in the best light, how much more should we this morning as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father be stubbornly and zealously committed to the proper representation and glory of his name in everything that we do. Amen? In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is likewise passionately committed to the reputation of God, and he's concerned that the church in Corinth isn't so much, especially in the matters of using their liberty and gospel witness in the world. As we just heard from 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33, from Paul's perspective, it is untenable for the true believer to go through life primarily concerned about his or her own preferences at the, at the expense of the glory of God. It's, it's unthinkable for him to do. Rather, he says that we must deny ourselves, and whether we eat, whether we drink, or whatever it is we do, we must do all to the glory of God. Call me an extremist now. My prayer is that by the end of the sermon, you will agree with me that there is no other way to live. As we see in our text this morning, because we are called to glorify God in all that we do, we must first understand the glory of God. We must then use our liberty to the glory of God. And lastly, we will see how we should become sacrificial evangelists to the glory of God. By his grace, we'll see those three things this morning. First, because you and I are called to glorify God in everything we do, we have to first understand what is this glory we're talking about. Did you know that many of you are actually fluent in a second language? No, I'm not talking about Farsi. But something else called Christianese. Unlike Farsi, this language can be problematic at times because it can confuse our non-Christian friends and family by using terms they've never heard before. Christianese also has a problem of draining words of their purpose, meaning, and value by allowing them to become so familiar that they lose their impact. 
A prime example of this is the word glory, or its verb, glorify. Have you ever ended a sentence to the glory of God, brother, or told somebody that your purpose in life was to glorify God, or saying glory, 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 hallelujah, without thinking really far about what you really mean by what you're saying? What does it mean to glorify God? Most of us would probably say that we want to glorify God, and understanding, most of us have an understanding that his glory is something that's valuable. But before we can fully understand Paul's exhortation in verse 31, which I argue is the driving force behind this passage and our entire life, we have to cut through the Christianese and regain this concept truly of what glory is. What is God's glory, and why should we do all to it? I would argue that if we understand this concept, we cannot not glorify God in all we do. Yes, that was a purposeful double negative. When we start to comprehend glory and see it for what it is, the application should flow so naturally that we do all to it, just as natural it is to someone with balance and two healthy legs as it is to ride a bike. When we see just a glimpse of God's glory, the application should just flow. We should be changed by it. Lord willing, he will do that to us this morning. So we start to comprehend the understanding of glory in two ways that helps us understand it. It's biblical context, and also, what did it mean in the original language? In Greek, the word glory is doxa, where we get the word doxology. We often associate doxology, singing it as we often do here, with honor, splendor, renown, glory. You get it, right? Which is appropriate. But at, the, at its root, doxa actually means to think or to recognize, such as your accurate opinion or, rep, or such as one's accurate opinion or reputation. So it's not just something that's bright and shiny and famous, but it's thinking and recognizing something properly as it is. It's knowing someone or something as it is. We see an example of this in John 5.44 when Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. He says, How can you believe when you receive glory one to another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We see the Pharisees were more concerned about the thoughts, reputations, and opinion of their peers rather than the thoughts, reputation, and worth that they were given from God himself. They cared less about his opinion and more about theirs. They sought others' glory. See how the word glory is used there? Also, um, although Paul didn't write this letter in 1 Corinthians in Hebrew, it gives us some insight into the definition to look at how the Old Testament used glory as well, because the, Old Test- the New Testament hadn't been canonized yet, so what Paul had to draw from was the Old Testament. So let's look at glory in the Old Testament as well. The term glory, um, kabo, means to be heavy, weighty, or valuable. This is generally understood in part of our English definition, isn't it? When we say glory, we attach in English this, this value and this weight to it as well. Sometimes not as much as it deserves, but we do have an idea of what this glory is, taken from the Hebrew. There is a grandeur about this word. We see this grandeur in passages like Psalm 19 and Psalm 73. 
that say things like, the heavens declare the glory of God. And when we die, it says in Psalm 73, we will be received to glory. So there's some other ways the word glory is used in its context. This shows us that God's glory is reflected in his good creation in the heavens and is perfect in heaven where there is only a true knowledge of who God is. So in one sense, the word glory is similar to heaven in that you and I have never seen it, we've never been there, but we can do our best to define it and we won't fully grasp the understanding of heaven until we arrive, won't we? So in some ways, glory is like beauty or heaven and that we can understand it because God has given us his perfect word and he's given us these words in its context so we can understand them. But the full comprehension of glory, just like heaven, won't be understood until we get there. One commentator put it this way, glory is the true apprehension of God or things. Glorifying God, then, is regarding him truly as he is or ascribing to him his full recognition. So when we read verse 31 here in our passage in 1 Corinthians this morning, when it says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, what Paul's saying is, do all so that God is thought of rightly, he's seen as he truly is, his character is made known to others, so that they form true opinions about him. Does that make sense? Do all to the glory of God. Now, do we, do you and I, actually make God great, as if he needs us to inflate him, like Miss Travers did with the character Mr. Banks? Does God's glory depend on his worshipers, like a celebrity's glory depends on their Twitter followers or their fan base? Is that how God works? Of course not. All value, truth, and glory in the universe is both created and determined by God himself. And therefore, we do not make him any more glorious than he is, do we? We don't. But rather, we are to do everything so that we accurately, keyword here, we accurately reflect, reflect God's glory, rather than showing the world a perverted version of what his glory looks like. So we are not the ones inflating this God that we are creating, but we are called to reflect the true source of glory that is God himself. So then if we understand God's glory to the the degree that it is revealed to us in Scripture, and we realize that we can't add to it, then why in the world are we so concerned about doing everything to his glory? If we're not adding one pound of glory to God... Why, are, why is he so concerned, and why should we be so concerned about doing everything we do to his glory? Simply put, because that is your role, and that is my role in this universe. We should be doing all to the glory of God, because simply, that's our role. Think of it this way. If we define glory as the true apprehension of the knowledge of God, who has that apprehension? Do you? God himself is the only one who has that perfect and full apprehension of who he is himself. We, finite fallen creatures, have a partial understanding of God and cannot, therefore, manufacture our own glory. I can't go into my workshop and start making glory, can I? I don't have a full understanding of God, so I can't produce it. But the key word I said, we can reflect it. 
Therefore, as God's creation, while we cannot generate it, we must reflect it. Think of yourself as a light bulb in an electrical circuit. The light bulb itself does not produce light, does it? No. You cannot light up the light bulb without a power source. You can also, and you don't have to be an electrical engineering major to understand this, you also have, a light bulb won't turn on if one end is hooked up to the power source, but the other end is not hooked back to the circuit. Won't light up, will it? You need that circuit to flow in order for there to be light. You can only shine when you are both receiving electricity and you are allowing those electrons to flow through you back to the source. Therefore, when we ask, why must we glorify God in all we do? We don't need to plumb the depths of philosophy. We don't need to understand science to its greatest degree or even meditate on the top of a mountain to understand what our purpose is. We don't. It's as basic as asking, why must a light bulb produce light? Because that's what it's made for. Scripture confirms this in many places in both the Old and New Testaments. Isaiah 43.7 says that God formed us and made us for his glory. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament further articulates this by saying in verse 6 and 7, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, treasure referring to the glory that is ours. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The problem the Corinthian church had and the problem that Camden Avenue Baptist has and the problem that many other churches in this world have today is that we want to keep the glory for ourselves or... We want to determine how and when to give this glory. That is our problem. Paul tells us clearly in verse 31 that if we want to even claim the title of Christian, we don't have a choice in the matter. But as Christians, all of life, all of life, whether it be eating, drinking, doing dishes, watching TV, online shopping, listening and communicating to others, the thoughts you have, the plans you make, all of that, should be done to the glory of God if you want to claim the title Christian. Rather than allowing us to figure out on our own how to respond, like light bulbs that are bought with a different wattage and rated for a different system than the power source, you know how good that works, it either burns out or doesn't work at all, unlike those light bulbs that are rated for a different power source, he tells us what the correct wattage is so that we can be in line with our power source, God. He has given us his perfect and holy word so that we can tune our lives to the word of God and know how to best reflect back his glory. He hasn't left us to guess. He hasn't left us to wallow about in our sin, but he's given us a a direction and a purpose to know how to glorify him, and it's right here. He's given it to us. So that we can shine properly like those light bulbs. So be honest with yourself right now. Do you believe, truly do you believe, that your purpose in life is this? Is your deepest desire to live in line with who God has created you to be, even if it means facing the greatest resistance? Even if it means death to yourself and death to your greatest desires? Even 
if it means picking up your cross and following Christ daily, wherever he may lead you, is that your deepest desire? Be honest. I pray it is. So because we have the Bible, because we have God's perfect instruction for godliness, we are able to understand how we are to glorify him. And Paul gives us two ways in this passage this morning how we must do so as well. Two ways. He says that by exercising our liberty or freedom properly, we should do it to the glory of other, or to the good of others, rather. And we must sacrificially give up our preferences and rights to be the best messengers possible for the gospel, to be the most useful, humble vessels possible for the for the message of God to go out to the nations. That is how Paul instructs the church, and that's how he instructs us this morning to be these light bulbs to the glory of God. So let's first consider our liberty that we have and how we can use it. Because we are called to glorify God in all we do, we must exercise our liberty for the glory of God. If you've been attending Sunday school or the sermons for the past few weeks, you may notice that this is a reoccurring theme. This understanding of how we must use our liberty in Christ. It's not an accident that this teaching keeps coming up. And I pray that this sermon series and the Sunday schools that you've been listening to give you that biblical understanding so that you know how to use your freedom and it is stamped on your heart. So that when this sermon series ends and when we move on to other teachings, it is so ingrained in who you are that it just is a reflex. It comes second nature to exercise your freedom for the glory of God and the good of others. That's my prayer. You will notice that in verses 23 through 33, there's 10 verses, and 7 of the 10 are concerned with this subject matter, using our freedom. But I believe that the climax of this passage is in verse 31, doing all to the glory of God. That's the glory of God. That's the big idea of this sermon, not exercising our liberty. But with that said, because we are slow to learn, and because Paul finds it important to explain this concept again, we can't brush by these first seven verses. We can't ignore it. So let's look at verses 23 through 30 here in 1 Corinthians 10. We are given a situation where a Christian is invited to a pagan's house to eat meat for dinner. And the context implies that accompanying him is a weaker Christian brother whose conscience is burdened to not eat meat offered to idols. It is through this hypothetical situation that would have been a common occurrence in Corinth that Paul teaches us an important universal concept. That's how we can properly forfeit our liberty for the good of others. So how should we exercise this freedom for our brothers and sisters? Paul starts out this passage in the same way he did in chapter 6, verse 12, the last time I preached, by quoting a common Corinthian phrase, all things are lawful for me, which has which was something that they heard from the apostle himself. But as I explained last time, they are taking this truth, slicing it in half, making it a half-truth, and adding their own ending to it. Using all things are lawful for me as as an excuse to sin. Now, Paul doesn't want them to do that. He's recovering the initial meaning. So Paul here says all things are lawful, lawful twice, but he adds his own ending to them regaining its real meaning, saying, but not all things are helpful, but not all things build up. Implying that they should be using 
their freedom in Christ, not for licentiousness, but for building up the body of Christ. In verse 24, he explicitly states the principle which should inform our liberty. Seek, let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of his neighbor. This principle was modeled by Christ himself, who had every right to his own comfort, but instead freely put the good of others above his own. Verse 25 and 26, moving on in the passage, then tell us that Christ, as Christians, we actually do have the right to eat meat that has been sacrificed uh, to pagan idols. We have that right. He's, quote, he's referring to his teaching in chapter 8. But an important distinction that we need to make here is that they're not inside the pagan temple anymore. They are inside the home of an unbeliever. Therefore, it's in the context of worship that in the temple that it's forbidden to eat this meat, but it's outside any context of worship when it's meat is just meat. You're eating a good steak that he's saying this meat does not carry any mystical power along with it. We'll, we'll see here in verse 26 why that is. Now, this may be analogous to my freedom to eat halal meats today. Have any of you heard of what halal meat is? Have you eaten? Okay. A lot of delis and a lot of sandwich shops in San Jose today offer halal meats. This is meat that has been prayed over by a Muslim in the name of Allah and has been the animal, whether it be chicken or what have you, been killed in a particular way in line with the Quran. Now, since this meat itself doesn't carry any mystical power with it, and there's no real existence behind that God, and I know the meat... originally comes from the creator, God himself, I therefore have the freedom to eat halal meat at Ike's Sandwich Shop on Bascom Avenue. And I'm not, I'm not worshiping Allah. I'm not sacrificing to idols. I'm simply eating chicken. God is the creator. I'm the recipient. If there's some other person in, in the middle who decided to do something with it that I don't know of, that's not for me in the context of any worship of, of Islam, if it's just in the context of eating a good chicken sandwich then I am not dishonoring God in any way. So we as Christians have this freedom. But look at verses... So, so he says this in verse 26. He makes a point. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So in verse 25, he's saying, don't raise any questions of conscience. Don't be that scrupulous person who's walking around saying paranoid that you're not glorifying God and going up to every meat stand in the market and saying is this, is this, is this don't be that picky person who's so concerned about something you don't have to be concerned about it's ridiculous also recognize that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof God is the creator God is the one who made this meat in the first place it's all his and as we heard in 1 Corinthians 8 although we, we recognize that there, is real de- there are real demons and there is real idol worship And when you are in the community of other people worshiping this idol in the temple, there is worship going on. Behind that demon, behind the idol, is nothing. It's nothing. God is the one who is the only God. No other real God has power in and of themselves. Only God is omniscient. Only he is omnipotent. So we don't need to fear these these other idols. We recognize that it's just hot air behind them. Yes, they have power. Yes, they can lead people to sin. But it was God who created this meat. The earth is his. And so because he created it, we are the recipients. We are free to eat. But in this situation here, in this passage, we see that accompanying this Christian 
was a weaker brother, one who may have had a past of pagan worship, one who may, when they see or understand that meat has been offered to an idol, they don't feel like they have the same freedom. They might feel awkward about it. They may feel, well, if I'm going to go eat this meat again, this might tempt me to go back to the temple and get the meat again, and I might stumble into idol worship. So there's another not as um, mature brother accompanying him who has a weaker conscience. In the scenario just described, um, it is in t- indeed outside the context of the temple. It is in this scenario that Paul says you are better off, as a Christian, even though you're free to do so, you're better off applying the principle of looking, looking after the good of the other rather than looking after how juicy and delicious that steak is. It's better to deny that meat for the night and eat salad than to cause that other believer in Christ to stumble. It is much better. It is much better to forfeit your own rights to promote the goodness of them than to to do what you're free to do at the sake of your brother's conscience. Although this particular situation that I'm describing may feel a little foreign to you today, you might not be able to identify with it, consider these three ways that we can apply this to our lives. We've talked about these in Sunday school, um, but I'm going to bring them up here. Um, Imagine that you are invited to a dinner where wine is served, and a brother or sister in Christ who has a history of alcoholism accompanies you. It is far better that you abstain. Second situation, your family is invited to a new World War II movie, which depicts the real horrors of war, but your son or daughter is very impressionable and would be prone to be prone to fear and anxiety by seeing these graphic images. It's far better to abstain. Third situation, you and your spouse are deciding what to do on a Saturday night, and you want to watch a movie, but this movie is like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and you'll be up past 1 a.m. You know that with a pot of coffee, you'll be good to go in the morning, but your spouse may not be the same. Your spouse has a hard time focusing in church with a lack of sleep. It is far better that you abstain from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. As you can see, this not only requires a denial of self for the good of others, but it also means that your brothers that you must know your brothers and sisters' weaknesses. You must know what they might stumble over. You must know their past. You must know what might lead them back into sin or might cause them not to glorify God as he, as he deserves. We must tr- strive as a church here at Camden to disciple one another so that we understand each other's weaknesses and teach one another to properly enjoy the freedom that we do have in Christ. This is hard work, don't get me wrong. But what better way to fulfill your purpose in life than by growing and being grown by your brothers and sisters in the faith. I want to challenge you to get one meal this week with a brother or sister outside of the regular Wednesday or or Sunday meeting. I want to encourage you to do that this week. Get to know them, sit down with them, pray with them, encourage them in the middle of their week. And also, understand where they may be struggling. Understand how you can pray for them. In this way, we as a church live out this principle putting the good of others above ourselves. Closing this section on our liberty for the glory of God 
is verse 29 and 30. Now, these two verses were the ones I probably spent the most time studying this week because at, on, at first glance, it appears as though Paul may be contradicting himself. So let's look at them and see what they really mean. So verse 29 and 30 says, If I partake, or um, he says, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Is Paul brazenly going back on a principle that he just taught about forfeiting your liberty for the conscience of others? Is, is Paul really going back on it? Is he brazenly saying, well, as long as you give thanks and say a prayer and be thankful for what you're eating, it doesn't really matter about causing your brother to stumble or not. No, he's not saying that. Although on the surface, it may come off like he's uh, contradicting himself, like he's saying, now don't worry about that. As long as you just give thanks, you provide a blanket over it. No, that's not what he's saying. The Greek to English translation is a bit difficult here. But in looking at various translations and understanding what it is in its context, what we can understand Paul to mean by verses 29 and 30 are saying, but what he's not saying is he's not saying, go ahead and eat despite the conscience of your weaker brother. He's not saying that. But he's saying, why would you choose to eat meat in the presence of a weaker Christian brother and allow your Christian freedom to be judged by him? Why would you even put yourself in that situation? He's saying, avoid his judgment. In in the ESV, I think it says, um, why would your liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? But in the NASB and some other translations... Uh, it doesn't say determined, but it says your liberty would be judged by them. Why would you put your freedom out to be judged by a Christian brother or sister when you, don't, when you have the option to not partake at all? He's saying it's better to avoid this judgment altogether and not meet, eat meat at all. Also in verse 30, he's not saying that if you give thanks for the food, it means you can disregard the conscience of your brother, but rather... We should not put ourselves in a situation where we are denounced for food that we gave thanks for. How can we be thankful to the Lord for something while simultaneously causing a Christian brother to stumble over it? We can't, can we? So in verse 30, if he says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? He's saying, why am I putting myself in a place to be denounced for that which I give thanks? We shouldn't do it. So he he gives the example and further explains this teaching by using verses 29 and 30. Don't put yourself in that situation. Why would you live a life that is constantly moving into those gray areas, trying to press the borders of what you can do? Understanding sin and understanding what demons are from the week before, we want to run as far away from that as possible. We do not want to put our lives out there and attract unnecessary judgment, do we? We don't. We want to live above reproach and for the, for the good of others as, insofar as we understand them and know who they are to the best of our ability. Now, there will be times when we offend one another. There will be times when we don't know what others' weaknesses are that we do stumble in this. By God's grace, he'll forgive us and we can move on from them. But we should strive for the unity of the body and for the good of others. So this decision to bend your preferences for the good of others um, in, in, inside the church um, in order to be more like Jesus and to reflect God's glory is what we should be doing. Laying down our rights, laying down our freedoms so that we can honor Christ and love them. 
It's hard for any church to move forward when everyone is insistent on his or her own way. It is that selfish pride that short-circuits the glory from flowing back to God and causes that light of the church to be dimmed significantly. It's that selfish pride of not taking into account the the needs of your brothers and sisters, what their weaknesses may be, that would short-circuit glorifying God and cause the church as a whole to be dimmed. I pray that wouldn't be the case in the churches anywhere in this world, especially here at Camden. So the same way that we must live within the church, sacrificing our rights and preferences for the good of others, we must do the same for those outside the church as well. We must do the same towards them so that we accurately demonstrate the message of the gospel. So that the gospel isn't only spoken of, but is also backed up by our lives. And the the message is most clearly communicated to those who need it most. Because we are called to glorify God in all that we do, we must be sacrificial evangelists to the glory of God. Now, Don't check out here. I know when you hear the word evangelist, a lot of times people get scared and they shut down. They're like, that's weird. That's scary. Evangelist, that's Billy Graham, but not me. My role is to do something more behind the scenes. I'm not the... So don't check out, brothers and sisters. Um, You'll see here that there's a glorious calling for each and every one of us. Verse 32 and 33 of this passage says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks, or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. By listing out Jews, Greeks, by listing the church of God, Paul is encompassing everyone in the known world. He's drawing upon a teaching he taught earlier, if you remember in chapter 9, to become all things to all these people in order that he may save some. Now, please note that Paul is not advocating that we become mere people pleasers. He's not saying, please everyone and everything you do to glorify them. He wouldn't be saying that. That would be directly contradicting the verse right before it, which says to do all to the glory of God. So note here that he's not saying, be people pleasers. There's a fine line between pleasing others for their sake and for God's sake, pleasing them for God's sake. From the outside, the difference may be imperceptible. But that dividing line is drawn when you ask, what is my motivation here? Why am I doing this? Am I doing this good thing, giving to this charity, helping this brother or sister, scrubbing the sink so that I receive glory, so that I'm trying to give this person glory, or so that I am trying to bring glory to God? So I'm trying to reflect his, his servant nature. Where is the glory going to? It's... So although on the outside, we may not be able to understand what um, the difference between pleasing others and pleasing God right away, or detect it, when we truly ask ourselves, why am I doing this? We see the difference in whom the glory is going to. This brings up a question of how aware must we be when we glorify God in everything? How aware and cognizant should you be on a day-to-day basis of glorifying God in everything you do? Well, verse 31, eating and drinking, that's pretty often. Does God expect me to offer a prayer of thanksgiving every time I take a breath? No, of course not. That would render you ineffective, wouldn't it? 
Thank you, God. Thank you, God. No. God does not want us to be these wound-up people that are constantly saying, okay, I'm paranoid walking around in this world. How am I glorifying God? How? No, he doesn't want us to be these neurotic people doing that. He wants us to eat and drink to the glory of God, which means that we should be sober-minded and intentional about our actions and choices, cognizant of where the glory is going to. We should be doing these things, but not being paranoid about it. The best example I could think of is the, an athlete or a musician who has trained so much that they don't have to think about what they're doing, but they act instinctually and from muscle memory when they do it. 1 Timothy 4.7 tells us to train ourselves in godliness. Therefore, if you are training daily, like this athlete or a musician, then it will become natural for you to glorify God, whether you are always aware of it or not. Does that make sense? Brandon has has grown greatly in his guitar ability over the years I've seen him. And now when he looks at these chords, he probably doesn't have to look down at every chord change. His fingers know where to go because he's trained himself in the practice of guitar. Likewise, you and I need to be in our word, need to be praying, need to be training ourselves in godliness so that we don't have to be paranoid, but we will naturally glorify God in, in all we do. So that it becomes part of who we are rather than just something we do. You see the distinction there. Notice that verse 33 in this passage, Paul says part of doing all to the glory of God means trying to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. These are some pretty all-encompassing words, aren't they? Paul is not one to soft-pedal a message, is he? He is very extreme. A lot of times we don't like to hear that. Personally, it's pretty refreshing. In a world of, of just softness and con- lack of convictions anywhere, it's very refreshing to hear that someone has firm convictions about what he believes and is, wants to give God the maximum glory. He uses these all-encompassing words, like everything, so that he gives us no wiggle room to hoard any of the glory for ourselves but he is calling for a complete denial of self so that we represent God most accurately and bring him the most glory. You can imagine that the practical application of Paul doing everything to everyone to bring all glory to God, you can imagine that this practical application is just mind-blowing. You might be asking right now, really, Paul? Really? Do you expect me to do this? Nobody can hear these words with pride, thinking that you've got this covered. There's other verses in the Bible that you can say, you know, I've mastered this concept, you know, not honestly, but that you have more of a, you have an easier chance of fooling yourself. But these are, this is not one of these verses. You can't fool yourself here. None of you right now, if I took a poll, would say that, I, yes, I glorify God in all that I do, doing everything, in, uh, pleasing everyone in everything I do. Nope. But maybe you're more skeptical. Maybe you think that this verse doesn't apply to you. Maybe you've checked out already because you think that this is too high of a calling. So why should we sacrificially try to please all men? Think about it this way. The person who cares about the glory of God the most 
same way Miss Travers did in saving Mr. Banks about her dad. The person who cares truly about the glory of God the most will care about his reputation amongst creation. And the amount of glory that is accurately reflected back to him, not generated by humans and given to him, but reflected back to him. And we want to bring the most glory to God. And we realize that we want to please everyone in everything we do because by ourselves, we're only one light. But we want as many people as possible to be shining and reflecting back God's glory to him so that he gets the maximum praise. That is what the Christian wants. The desire for creation, not to do, bend over backwards and do something crazy, but to simply go back to living in line with the purpose they were created. We don't have to, to tell the mountains and the birds to, to glorify, glorify God. They do it. They do it perfectly, in fact. That's why people love going to the ocean, I think, for, for, one of, for many reasons. But when you look out, you see the glory of God. And there's no, it's not tarnished. It's, it's made and it operates how it was designed to. And we've heard this before. Humans, we are the only thing in this creation that has perverted that. We are the only people that do not perfect, the only beings created that do not perfectly glorify God. Well, maybe angels, but that's for another time. <clears throat> so this is the same, you may understand, with any lesser glory in life the glory of a good meal, the glory of a funny movie or a beautiful picture, it must be shared with others. After having, after having tasted and seen not just a delicious spaghetti, but God's goodness, after tasting that revealed through the gospel, we have no other choice but to please everyone in everything we do, not seeking our own advantage, but the advantage of others, so that they may be saved so they may come and taste and see the goodness of God as well and want to, with their lives, live as they were made to live. Live as those light bulbs that are attached to the circuit with the correct wattage. Not only that, but we must remember that we were once strangers. You and I were once enemies of God, living our lives for our own glory and not His. And so you and I have every reason to want to share about the same grace that we have received. We cannot stand in pride over anyone and say these people are not deserving of this good gospel message because we were once there. Paul recognizes in verse 33 that if he doesn't get in the way of this powerful message by seeking his own preferences and rights, then, and only then, will God use him as a messenger, as a as a good and, and humble vessel for this message to be saved, for this message to be proclaimed so that many babies, many babies saved. Excuse me. Is that not your greatest desire as well? That many be saved from, from the punishment of their sins leading to an eternal death. Is that not your desire as well? To see others enter into the glory of God both here and enjoying him forever in heaven? Is that not your greatest desire? If so, what are you willing to give up? If so, are you willing to invest your time in difficult people? Are you willing to risk your reputation amongst your family and amongst your co-workers so that more people may glorify him? Are you willing to give up your desire to be approved by people? 
are you actually willing to accommodate a boring conversation with someone about something that you could care less about so that you show patience and love for that person, wanting to demonstrate the gospel to them and turn the conversation towards truth? Are you willing to give up your time and give your patience over so that you may please everyone in everything you do? Not being that rude person who says, oh, I don't know about horses, I'm going to walk away now. What are you willing to do to promote the glory of God in his right opinion in this world? Like Mrs. Travers, are you willing to choose poverty over allowing someone to twist the name of Christ? How fiercely committed are you to the glory of God? Is it something that you think about, pray about, make plans for? After examining this high calling but this realistic command to glorify God in everything we do, it becomes blatantly obvious that you and I fail. We fail miserably. How do you think God feels about our failure? Do you think that he is okay with a mediocre effort? Many of us have created this false God in our heads to justify our comfortable Christian lifestyle. We've created a God that is okay with a mediocre effort. Let me ask you, is your employer okay with just stealing a little money? Is your spouse okay with you flirting just a little bit with another woman? Are you okay with having people just tell a little lie about you? Just twist your character slightly. Obviously not. In the same way, our God of justice, who has created us for the purpose of doing all to his glory, is not simply okay when his creation rebels and tries to usurp his throne, when we seek our own glory and twist his character, even for a second. God cannot just chill out and let us glorify him on our own terms, because if we did, because if he did do that, he would be agreeing that his ways aren't best, and he would be agreeing that he doesn't deserve to be accurately represented in this world he would no longer be a good God. So he cannot lower his standard. We see the standard in Matthew 5, 19 through 20. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We cannot take God's standard of perfection lightly. The Bible says that the punishment for this refusal to give God the full credit he is due with our lives is the punishment due to an idolater. Revelations 21.8 is clear that all idolaters, that's people who worship idols, people who worship themselves or other things or do not give God his full glory, all of these idolaters have their part in the lake of fire. That means that anyone who has worshipped anyone or anything other than God of the Bible is justly deserving to no longer propagate these lies about what glory is and is unable to enter into the true glory of the Father. You see a problem here, don't you? We are all on the hook. All of us have sought and given glory in contradiction to the knowledge of Scripture and the knowledge of the true God. And therefore, you and I have, have one time or another in our lives, perpetuated the, 
the lie that life can be lived apart from God. If God cannot simply excuse our high treason of self-glory, is there any way that we can be forgiven and redeemed to live the lives that we should to the glory of God? Is there any way that we can be forgiven? Is there any good news here? Thankfully, this morning, there is. Yes, we can be redeemed. Yes, we can be renewed. And we can live lives that bring him much glory. Jesus was sent into this world to fulfill the role as as the Christ, whose purpose was to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ, in Hebrews 1, is called the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, this Christ took on a perishable body of body, of flesh and bone, so that he could have it nailed to a Roman cross, willingly to pay for the sins of man. He was the only human to ever eat and drink perfectly and do all to the glory of God and the good of others, sacrificing every right, every freedom that he was entitled to as God himself so that he could love man. He was crucified and buried in the tomb. He took the punishment that Christians deserved. The good news is that three days later, he rose from that tomb to show that that sacrifice on the cross was not in vain, but he indeed was victorious. And his mission to come into this world to set mankind back onto the course of honoring and glorifying God properly, this mission was complete. Can you believe the extent Christ voluntarily went to in order to best glorify God in the world? Can you believe the extent to which he glorified God? It's unthinkable. Because his sacrifice was 100% in line with God's glory... God is pleased to take away the sin and replace it with righteousness of anyone here this morning and anyone who hears this message of those who would repent and believe in the Son. God doesn't want us to continue living as these dim light bulbs or burning out because we are hooked up to the wrong source, because we're not listening to God's word but listening to some other source. God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that for anyone. He desires that none should perish. Because of Christ's work on the cross, if you and I repent and put our faith in Jesus and follow after him, he is able to forgive us for not worshiping him and glorifying him in everything that we do. He's able to fill us with his spirit and give us the desire, like that musician or like that athlete, to naturally glorify God, whether we eat or whether we drink. In this way, when God sees a forgiven Christian, he sees you hidden in Christ. And God the Father is able to relate to you, not on the basis of your own goodness, but like we sang earlier, based on the merits of his perfect son. Our debt of sin can be cleared and we can enter into God's glory as we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. What this means for us today is that if you have repented, and you have put your faith in Jesus, then you are empowered to accurately represent God in all that you do. You are empowered, like Paul, to do everything for everyone to please them so that they may be saved.
you're willing to lay down your preferences. You're willing to lay down your rights because there's a greater mission that you want to be part of. And you realize that your selfishness would only get in the way of that mission. Also, the good, encouraging news for us this morning is that when we fail in this, when realistically we don't do everything to the glory of God, because we've been forgiven, we can stand up again and look to Christ, knowing that God loves us, not based on our performance, but based on Christ's perfection. That takes the weight off our shoulders. And seeing that Christ was perfect for us. We'll have a a desire because of what he's done to to be perfect. We'll want to, but we realize that when we fall, we don't have to fall into depression, but we can repent and turn again to the perfect Savior. In the early 1700s, in Germany, two men by the name of John Leonard Dobert and David Nitschmann first heard about an island. They were at church on an ordinary Sunday morning like this one. The pastor was speaking about a place in the West Indies where there had never been a gospel witness before. This pastor told them of a man on that island who was an atheist slave owner with 3,000 slaves who would live and die on that island without ever having the chance to hear the name of Jesus. Deeply disturbed by what they heard, these two men in their early 20s made the decision to go to this place, to reach these slaves with the gospel. Their plan? Sell themselves into slavery so that they could be among these men. Sell themselves into slavery. These guys were not going on a short-term mission trip. They were, not, they were willing to go and live and suffer alongside these slaves And they had no idea if they would be able to return home or not. Their families and friends, in large part, were against their decision, saying, you guys are crazy. And yet, John and David prepared to go. As they stepped on the ship and pushed away from the pier, knowing that this would most likely be the last time they would ever see their family and loved ones, they locked arms, and one of the men raised his arm in the air and shouted back to the land, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the full reward for his suffering. Their love for the glory of God and sacrificial love for those 3,000 slaves and the atheist master in the West Indies compelled them to go. Sadly, we still live in a world where there is a large amount of unreached people. Just to give you a few, for example, the Luma people of Laos in Asia have a population of 78,000 and are less than 2% Christian. The country of Afghanistan has 32 million people and only 0.1%, that's 0.1, are Christian. Santa Clara County, in which we live, I checked online last night, says that 12.5% People claim to, be in, claim to be evangelical here. And I would argue most likely less. What are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Dozens of your neighbors likely do not know Christ. What are you going to do about it? Dozens of your coworkers likely do not know Christ. What are you going to do about it? Dozens of your family members 
Those who you grew up with, those who you love, those who you see at Thanksgiving and Christmas likely do not know Christ. What will you do about it? When we affirm that our purpose in life is to glorify God, and we understand that one of the primary ways we do so is in reconciling sinners to God himself, we have no choice but to say, Lord, my life is wholly yours. Use me however you will. We have no other choice. As you consider the gospel and what God gave up to rescue you from the eternal flames of hell, how, he, how, how can we possibly live another day without the desire to glorify God in all that we do? In the burden to share the good news of the cross with the lost. Before you leave this building this morning, recognize you were made for glory Hand over your tight-fisted rights and comforts and commit yourself to the only mission that matters, to give the Lamb the full reward of his suffering. And after you have persevered, you too will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, I know that our lives are comprised of so many things that don't matter. We know that everything does matter in some sense, but Lord, oftentimes we have gotten caught up in the the tide of our culture. We do so many things for our own glory, things that don't really matter eternally. But Lord, this this morning, this that we heard, your glory, the reason why we are gathered, that matters. I pray that the mission that we are on with our lives, the purpose that we get up in the morning, is for your glory. Give us a proper understanding of your glory, knowing that you have it completely. You're not vain. You don't need us to puff you up, Lord. It is all yours. But God, You've made us for your glory. We know that when we go against the grain for which we've been made, Lord, we know that life gets messy and we get broken. I pray that that would not be the case for any of us here, God. But I pray that we would see that through Christ, who perfectly ate and drank for your glory and went to the cross for your glory and died for our sin for your glory and is able to redeem us, I pray that we with his righteousness, are able to live this out. Make glorifying you as natural it is for these musicians up here to change chords, to play music. May that be our lives. May that not just be what we do, but may that be who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.